Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com is the email address. And you can find us on Twitter at Ratchet Book Club. You can leave a review at Podchaser, Apple Podcasts, and also at Stitcher and um, Podcast Attic and a bunch of other places. We're like everywhere. If you leave a review, that's dope. Let me Let me know you left one. I don't want you to leave a review and not get told thank you for it. You know, that's rude. And so I want to be able to read the reviews that y'all leave for me. So then I could be like, eh. but if I don't get a review, then I can't be like, eh. and then you're going to be sitting there like, why didn't he read my review and give me a, eh? and it's because I don't fuck with Apple. Long way, long way around to say, I have an Android. Like you'd have to literally, I would have to go. You would have to email me and say, hey, Derek, I left a review for you on Apple. I would have to leave my house and go to my brother's house, which isn't far. He lives right around the corner. I'd have to leave my house, go to my brother's house, knock on his door, say, what's that? He looks over his shoulder. I steal his phone. I log him out of his phone. I log in to podcasts. I download stuff on his phone. I also subscribe to my shows on his phone because why not? I also leave reviews for my shows on his phone while he's not looking. It's a long way off. He can't find what I'm saying. What's that? I keep saying it. It's over there. Leave reviews for like all my shows and then I look for your show. Then I have to run back to my house because I'm not going to remember what you said on the review on his phone at his house at that time. So I'm going to have to run back to my house with his phone. Now he's chasing me. Other people are watching two black people chasing each other in my neighborhood, and they call the cops. Now the cops are at my house. They knock on the door. I'm in there trying to read the review that you left for me. Cops are at my door. Brother's in my kitchen because he sees what's going on, and now he's just hungry. He knows I'm a chef. It's a whole thing. So if you want to just go to Podchaser and leave a review, not only can you leave a review for separate episodes, but you can also leave a review for the show as a whole, and that's much easier and safer. Because, really, do you want cops at my door because I want to read your review? I mean, if you have to leave it on Apple, I appreciate it. But if you don't have to, like, don't. Like, seriously, fuck Apple. I mean, I have stock in Apple, but that's because I'm rich. Speaking of being rich, you can also become a patron. <laughs> Go to patreon.com backslash single simulcast to get the shows early. Um... And a bunch of other shit. Like, we have all types of shit on the Patreon. And when I say we, I really mean me. I don't know why I do that. It's me and my personalities. Um, maybe I mean my wife. I'll figure that out. And you can go to buy me a cup of coffee or buy me a coffee. Buy me a coffee. Yeah, that's it. You can go to buy me a coffee backslash cast if you want to donate money so then I can buy some more books. You get that? Good. Chapter 37. The last time we saw Maniac... Should I call him Jeff? Nah, I'm stick with calling him Maniac. Last time we saw Maniac, he was convincing Russell and Piper to stay in school because that's important, but he's not going to school. So I'm like, why do you can't these kids go to school? But then I realized, I've realized something, y'all. Maniac is Jesus. That's it. Chapter 37. Thus began a series of heroic feats by Maniac McGee. At 20 paces, he hit a telephone pole with a stone 61 times in a row. When the once-a-week freight train hit Elm Street, he started running from the Oriole Street dead end on one rail and beat the train to the park, no sweat. He took off his sneaks and socks and walked, nonchalant as you please, through the rat-infested dump at the foot of Rako Hill. 
Dang, I just realized at the age of 10, I was reading nonchalant. Huh. And mysterious. The mysterious hole down by the creek, the one you'd never reach into, even if you dropped your most valuable possession into it. He stuck his hand in, his arm in, all the way to the elbow, kept it there for the longest 60 seconds on record, and pulled it out, dirty, but still full of fingers. He climbed the fence at the American Bison Pen at the zoo. He had suggested this feat himself, everyone else scoffing, and, while the mother looked on, kissed the baby buffalo. Side note, nobody knows why buffalo became bull in a jump rope song. History often gets things wrong. So, it went through February and March of that year, a feat for a week. To much of the town, hearing about these things, it was simply a case of the legend adding to itself, doing what legends do. To Russell and Piper McNabb, it was a case of boosting their importance ever higher in the eyes of the other kids. Was it not at the brothers' direction that Maniac McGee performed these deeds? And after all, who's the more amazing? The lion or the tamer? Okay, so I'm going to tell you this joke because it's not explicit. And so I can say it on here without feeling badly about it at all. You ready? Okay, let's go. What did the tiger say after he mauled Siegfried? Ta-da! As for Maniac, he understood her. <laughs> I tried to be straight-faced about it. I'm sorry. That's such a great joke. <clears throat> As for Maniac, he understood early on the... <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> Ta-da! Ta-da! <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> he probably bowed like curtsied. Oh, man. I never learned how to curtsy. And now I'm doing uh, weight training where they want you to do curtsy-like bends with the weights. And I can't curtsy. And they look at me like I'm crazy. As for Maniac, he understood early on that he was being used for the greater glory of Piper and Russell. He also understood that without him, they wouldn't be going to school every day. For the McNabs, there was nothing free about public education. A tuition had to be paid. Every week, Maniac paid it. And besides, he loved to meet the challenges they cooked up for him. And then one day, they gave him the most perilous challenge of all, they dared him to go into the East End. Where's their brother in this? Like, John knows he goes to the East End. He knows it. He literally watched dude walk into the East End and he told him, don't ever come back here. Like, yo, y'all, come here, come here, come here. Piper, Russell, yeah, whatever. I don't care what your names are. Come here. Y'all know he lives in the East End, right? Like, I know y'all racists are like, little kid races and I never told you this but I actually hang out near the east end but he lives there don't don't dare him to do that dare him to get out of our house and not come back I'm sick of this fool chapter 38 the witnesses there were twice 15 this time went with him as far as Hector Street they halted at the curb he crossed the street and went on alone Piper megaphoned after him maniac Come back! We was just kidding! You don't have to! Maniac just waved and went on. He knew he should be feeling afraid of these EastEnders, these so-called black people. But he wasn't. It was himself he was afraid of. Afraid of any trouble he might cause just by being there. It was the day of the worms. 
that first almost warm after the rainy night day in April, when you bolt from your house to find yourself in a world of worms. They were as numerous here on the east end as they had been in the west. The sidewalks, the streets, the very place when they didn't belong. Forlorn, marooned on concrete and asphalt, no place to burrow, April's orphans. Once, when he was little in Hollidaysburg, he had gone along with his tour wheelbarrow, carefully lifting them with the borrowed kitchen fork until the barrel was full, and then dumped them into Mr. Snavely's compost pile. And sure as the worms followed the rain, the kids followed the worms. West End, East End, they had poured from their houses onto the cool, damp sidewalks. And if they gave the worms any notice, it was only when they squashed one underfoot. That reminds me. I guess I'm going to read How to Eat Fried Worms at some point, because that book still goes crazy. And so Maniac moved through the East End, and he felt the presence of not one, but two populations, both occupying the same territory, yet each unmindful of the other. One yelping and playing and chasing and laughing, the other lost and silent and dying by the millions. He, he means the worms. He doesn't mean like black folks and white folks. I just wanted to make sure y'all knew that. Yo! Fish belly! Maniac snapped too. He glanced at a street sign. He was four blocks from Hector, deep in the east. Mars Bar came dip jiving towards him. Taller than before. Bigger. But still scowling. Hey, fish. Thought you was gone. Maniac turned to face him fully. Mars Bar did not stop till he was inside Maniac's phone booth of space. Inches from his face. They locked eyes. Levelly. Maniac thinking, I must be growing too. He said, I'm back. You know what other legends said I'm back like that with no other explanation? Michael Jordan and Jesus. <laughs> the scowl fiercened. Maybe nobody told you, but I'm badder than ever. I'm getting badder every day. I'm almost afraid to wake up in the morning, he leaned in closer, because of how bad I might have got overnight. Maniac smiled, nodded. Yeah, you're bad, Mars. He gave a sniff. His eyes went a little smirky. And I'm getting so bad myself, I think I must be half black. Dang, Rachel Dolez almost read this book and be like, me too! Mars's eyes bulged. He backed off. The scowl collapsed and he howled with laughter. His buddies, who were hanging back, stared dumbly. As Mars unwound from his laughing fit, he studied Maniac up and down, aware, too, that Maniac was studying him. When he could speak again, he said, Still them raggedy clothes, huh, fish? He lifted one foot, posed. I seen you looking. Like them kicks? I just got them. Maniac nodded. Nice. They were more than nice. They were beautiful. The best, yes, the baddest sneaks he had ever seen. Way better than anything Grayson could have afforded. I forgot to tell you something else too, Fish. What's that? I'm fast. I mean, I'm faster. I've been working out. Got my new boss kicks. He sprinted in place, arms and legs pissing into a blur. He stopped. 
He jabbed a finger of Maniac's nose, pressed it, flattening the soft end of it. See? Guess who was right? Now at least you got a black nose. He laughed. They both laughed. Everybody laughed. Then Mars turned scowly again, saying, But you ain't black enough or bad enough to beat the Mars man. We gonna race, honky donkey. The race was set up on Plum Street, the long, level block between Ash and Jackson. By the time they were ready, half the kids in the East End were there, from the tiniest pipsqueaks to high schoolers. The little kids ran races of their own from curb to curb. The bigger kids shouldered blasters and dug into their jeans for coins to bet with. For the first time since last fall, mothers opened windows and leaned out from second stories. Traffic was detoured from both ends of the block. No one could find string for the finish, so a second story mother dropped down a spool of bright pink thread. Another problem was a start. First, they had to find chalk to draw the starting line. When they did, nobody could seem to draw it straight. The result, a stack of starting lines creeping up the street until someone brought out a yardstick and did it right. The next problem came when the starter, Bump Gilliam, who was also Mars Bar's best pal, called, Get ready! And someone in the crowd yelled, That ain't what you say! You say take your mark! Well, everybody jumped into it then. There was shoving and jawing and almost a fistfight over the proper way to start a race. Finally, there was a compromise, and Bump called, Get ready on your mark! At which somebody else called out, Go, Mars! And Bump turned and snarled, Shut up! When the starter starts, there's no noise. So naturally, someone else called, Smoke em, Mars! And then came, Waste em, Mars! And, Do the honk, barman! And they might still be calling to this day had not a single voice separated itself from the others. Burn em, McGee! It was hands down, laughing and pointing from his perch on the roof of a car. Bump stepped into the let up. Get set! Go! And at long last, mossy from their weight at the starting line, they went. Even as the race began, even after it began, Maniac wasn't sure how to run it. Naturally, he wanted to win, or at least do his best. All his instincts told him to do that. But there were other considerations. Whom he was racing against, and where, and what the consequences might be if he won. These were heavy considerations, heavy enough to slow him down, until the hysterical crowd and the sight of Mars Bar's sneaker bottoms and the boiling of his own blood ignited his afterburners. And before you could say, burn him, McGee, he was ahead, the pink thread bobbing in his sights. But he never saw his body break the thread. He only saw the face of Mars Bar, straining, gasping, unbelieving, losing. They went crazy. They went wild. They went totally bananas. You see him? He turned around. He ran backwards. He did it backwards. He beat him going backwards. Mars Bar tried. He shoved Bump. You started too fast. I wasn't ready. He shoved the thread holders. 
You moved it up so he could win. I was gaining on him. He shoved Maniac. You bumped me. You got a false start. You cheated. But his protests were drowned in the pandemonium. Why did I do it? Was all Maniac could think. He hadn't even realized it until he crossed the line, and he regretted it instantly. Wasn't it enough just to win? Did he have to disgrace his opponent as well? Had he done it deliberately? To pay back Mars Bar for all his nastiness? To show him up and shut him up once and for all? His only recollection was a feeling of sheer joyful exuberance, himself in celebration, shouting Amen in the Bethany Church, bashing John McNabb's fastballs out of sight, dancing the polka with Grayson. Maybe it was that simple. After all, who asked why otters toboggan down mud banks? But that didn't make it any less stupid or rotten a thing to do. The hatred in Mars Bar's eyes was no longer for a white kid in the East End. It was for Jeffrey McGee, period. The crowd surged with him as he made his way westward. It wasn't clear whether they were glad or not that he had won, only that they had seen something to set them off. They jostled and jammed and high-fived and jived. For everyone who called him White Lightning, two more challenged him to race. Right here, baby, you and me. See who's going to turn his back on who. Maniac kept moving, embarrassed, wishing he could just break out and sprint for the West End. Wishing he could duck into the Bills house and be sanctuary there and not fear reprisals on them. And just about then, miraculously, two little hands were worming into his. Two familiar voices squealing, Maniac! Maniac! Hester and Lester! He snatched them up, one in each arm. He was on Sycamore Street. There was the house, the door opening. Amanda, Miss Bill smiling to beat the band. I've had situations where I've shown up somebody who didn't deserve it. But it wasn't like that. It was my uh, AAU basketball team, that, or not my AAU basketball team, my middle school basketball team that I was coaching. That was full of AAU players. And they scored 100 on another team. And I felt badly after the game, but my mindset was my team was at home and the school that they were playing for had never had that happen. Like they had never scored 100 and it was a packed crowd and they were undefeated and they deserved this moment. There were some kids in the on the team who would never have this moment again. May never play basketball past this middle school team. But there's other kids on the other team who have may never lived down that moment. Even if it was middle school, it might be in their head even now, and I still think about that every so often. I think about that sometimes. <laughs> Chapter 39. During the night, March doubled back and grabbed April by the scruff of its neck and flung it another week or two down the road. When Maniac slipped silently from the house at dawn, the only way he'd ever managed to get away, March pounced with cold and nasty paws. But Maniac wasn't minding. The reunion had been ecstatic and tearful and non-stop happy, and inside, he was pure July. He was half a block up Sycamore before he stopped tiptoeing. Minutes later, he crossed Hector. The streets were dry. An occasional scrap of chewed rawhide was all that remained of the worms. Hours later, Russell and Piper spotted him three blocks off. Maniac! You're alive! 
We thought they got you. We thought they slit your throat. We thought they strangled you and pulled your tongue out. We thought they chopped your head off and... And... And boiled you. Yeah, boiled you. And drunk your blood. Yeah. And drunk your brains. You don't drink brains, you moron meatball. Yeah, you do. Brains are like milkshakes. Like Dairy Queen. I love Dairy Queen. Oh my God, I love blizzards. You can drink them with a straw. You can hear them sloshing if you shake your head hard enough. Listen. Hey, get off my head. Hey, help! They were off and running. Mania I couldn't help laughing. In spite of their twisted, ludicrous impressions of Eastenders, their concern and the tears in their eyes had been genuine. They had really missed him. They had really been afraid for him. Two houses away, he could hear the thump, almost feel it. And Father George McNabb's voice, lay him down easy. I said, easy, followed by son John. This easy enough? Followed by a string of cursing by George McNabb that fried the cold morning like an egg. The living room was hazy with dust. At the back end of the dining room, they were bringing in the cinder blocks. George and John and a handful of cobras, lugging and grunting them in from the backyard and thumping them onto the floor. Hey kid, George McNabb was pointing through the haze. Three months and he still didn't know his tenant's name. Get your lily hide over here. Start lugging these. Maniac waved. Later. Gotta go. He shut the door and headed up the street. So they were really doing it. He had heard them planning it for weeks. Making drawings. Buying or stealing. Cement. Trowels. A level. A pillbox, they called it. Once it was done, they'd be ready. Let the revolt begin. Let the rebels, as they called the East Enders, come. Let them bust through the newly installed bars over the plywood on the windows. Let them bust through the steel door. They'll find themselves staring down the barrel of a little surprise. They squabbled over what the surprise should be. Uzi. AK-47. Bazooka. Why? Maniac could ask Giant John one day. Why what? Why are you doing all this? To get ready. Why else? Well, what do you think's going to happen? What's going to happen? Giant John swatted a squad of roaches from the kitchen table and sat down. What's going to happen is, one of these days they're going to revolt. Who says? Who cares who says? You think they're going to make an announcement? Maniac tried to picture Amanda and Hester and Lester and Bow while storming the barricades. When's all this supposed to happen? John shrugged. You never know. Maybe this summer. He jumped up, grabbed a beer from the fridge, flipped it open. They like to revolt in the summer. Makes them itchy. They like to overrun the cities. This time, we'll be ready. And he told Maniac what he often imagined, lying in bed. The black sweeping across Hector one steamy night. Torches, chains, blades, guns, war cries, marauding, looting, 
overrunning the West End. Climbing in through smashed windows, doors, looking for whites, bloodthirsty for whites, like Indians in the old days, Indians on a raid. That's what they are. Giant John nodded thoughtfully. Today's Indians. The cockroach strolling up his pants leg wasn't the only thing making Maniac feel crawly. He shook off the roach. He moved to the center of the kitchen to surround himself with as much space as possible. But other people, he said, I don't hear them talking about revolts. Nobody else wants to make a pill box. Giant John tilted the last of the beer into his mouth. Maybe when we do, he grinned, they will. That had been weeks before, and now the pillbox is underway. No longer an idea in the backyard, but a reality in the dining room. Now there was no room the maniac could stand in in the middle of and feel clean. Now there was something else in that house, and it smelled worse than garbage and turds. Just want to point out one thing. Also, the thing that was in the house is racism. Um, and violence. The threat of violence. want to point out one thing. Um... The indigenous Americans that he was referring to, as well as the blacks, folks, didn't do anything. The white folks were the aggressors in both situations. And when you watch television and you read these history books that allow you to imagine a world where white folks are always the heroes and that white folks can't be wrong, do you know how annoying that is? Like, seriously, if you have anybody in your family who can never be wrong, like when you talk to them, you're, they're never wrong. Even when they're wrong, they're never wrong. They will argue their way out of it and they will never stop arguing with you until you finally just say, you know what, I don't want to argue anymore. And you walk out. That is literally like talking with some folks about the history of this planet and white folks place in that history. I didn't see all that when I was 10. Chapter 40. He ran far that day, away from the town, letting the wind wash him. When he returned to the West End, he heard in the distance Miss Pickwell whistling her children into dinner. Though he had heard the whistle many times, he hadn't answered it since his first day in town. Now he felt, as he had that day, that it was meant for him. This time, of course, there was a difference. He was no stranger. He was Maniac McGee. The kid who would walk barefoot through the dump near their house. The Pickwell kids cheered when he showed up and treated him like a legend in the flesh. Miss Pickwell did better. She treated him like a member of the family. As if she would have been surprised if he hadn't come on the whistle. Nor was Maniac the only visitor for dinner. Mr. Pickwell had brought home a down-and-out shoe salesman in sore need of sympathy and a good meal. Those are good people. I wonder what would happen if they brought home somebody black. As Maniac ate and talked and laughed his way through dinner, he couldn't help but think of how the bills are. How alike the two families were. Friendly, giving, accepting. So easily he could picture the Bill's brown face around this kitchen table. And the little Pickwell kids' white bodies in the bathtub of the 728 Sycamore. Whoever had made Hector Street a barrier, it surely wasn't these people. Fortified by his good time at the Pickwell's, Maniac returned to the McNabs. After the East End scare, Russell and Piper no longer demanded stunts of him in return for attending school. On the one hand, this would relieve the Maniac. On the other, it left him with less influence over them. 
He can always extort a day or two in class from them with a free weekly pizza. Beyond that, he goaded them toward school any way he could. He organized a marbles tournament that could only take place in the schoolyard during recess. He tried reading to them, as he had to Hester and Lester and the Grayson, but they paid as much attention as the Roaches. He took them to the library, then scrapped that idea after their shenanigans left the librarian blubbering in Blueface. Blueface, baby! Sorry. <laughs> then May arrived with its warm weather and blew away what little power he had left. The boys began again to dream of travel. Wood appeared in the backyard. They were building a raft. Gonna sail down the river to the ocean, they said. One day, he heard frenzied horn honking and screaming. He turned to see an ancient, rusty, gas hog convertible rolling by, with Russell behind the wheel and Piper jumping up and down and shrieking in the back seat. By the time Maniac caught up, they were gone, and the car was shuddering against the telephone pole. Another time, he had to run them down and haul them back to Dorsey's groceries, where he made them empty their bulging pockets of the 50 bubblegums they had stolen. It was a maddening, chaotic time for Maniac. Running in the mornings and reading in the afternoons gave him just enough stability to endure the zany nights of the McNabs. When he asked himself why he didn't just drop it, drop them, the answer was never clear. It wasn't so much that he wanted to stay as that he couldn't go. In some vague way, to abandon the McNabb boys would be to abandon something in himself. He couldn't shake the suspicion that deep inside Russell and Piper McNabb, in the prayer dark seat of their childhoods, they were identical to Hester and Lester Bill. But they were spoiling, rotting from the outside in, like a pair of peaches in the sun. Soon, unless he, unless somebody did something, the rot will reach the pit. And yet he held back. Oh, he prodded and persuaded and inspired and bribed the boys to do right. But he never forced them, never commanded, never shouted. Because to do so would be parental. And he wasn't yet ready for that. How could he act as a father to these boys when he himself ached to be somebody's son? But then one day, the boys went too far. He found them playing with the old glove Grayson had given him for Christmas. As if that wasn't bad enough, they were using it as a football, punting it back and forth. Maniac exploded. He popped off for a good ten minutes, got it all out. This is the last straw, he told him. From now on, it was going to be different. No more Mr. Nice Guy. When I say jump, you say how high. Got it? They got it. For the first time in their lives, the boys were speechless. Speechless as they did their homework that night. Speechless as they went to bed at 9 o'clock. Speechless as they went off to school next morning. The peace lasted for three days. Shock accounted for the first day. The second and third days were a new game called obedience or being good. When the game lost its appeal... Maniac lost his power. He told them to sit. They stood. He told them to stand. They sat. Instead of going to school, they worked on their raft. Instead of doing homework, they played war in the pillbox. 
They brought their plastic weapons down from the hole and stationed themselves at the two small gunnery slots in the cinder block wall and blasted away at anybody moving through the house. Not to mention imaginary rebels streaming through the door and over the windowsills. Stop! Maniac finally yelled and snatched the two red gun barrels protruding from the slots. In a moment, two more barrels appeared. Stop! He commanded. Ain't shooting you, Russell whined. We're shooting them rebels. Bam, bam, bam. Pow, got one. Pow, bam, got another. Bam, bam. I said, stop. Maniac grabbed the guns, threw them on the floor, and stomped on them. He didn't stop until there were plastic splinters. The only sound was that of the turtle scratched somewhere in the room. The gunnery slots framed the boys' dumbstruck faces. Russell was the first to speak. Get out of my house. Yeah, sneered Piper. Out of here. Maniac went upstairs, got his satchel, and was gone. That night and the next night, he slept at the park. The following day, as he sat reading in the library, in came the McNabb boys. They rushed to him. Hey, Maniac! blurted Piper. We've been looking all over for you. You gonna come to my birthday party? I'm having a party tomorrow. What do you say, huh? You coming, huh? Maniac couldn't believe it. The ugly feelings of the other day showed nowhere in their excited faces. Come on, Maniac, you gotta. And just like that, as he stared at him, the idea came. An idea as zany as they were. The words seemed to lift right off their faces, like sunburnt skin peeling. Well, okay, he said, on one condition. What's that? If I could bring somebody with me. Sure, bring everybody. We're going to partay. The librarian edged closer to the phone. Chapter 41. The McNabb boys didn't know whom they did expect Maniac to bring to the party. But one thing for sure, they did not expect him to come walking through the door with a black kid. And that was only half of it. From the way the kid swaggered in, from the candy bar that jutted like a chocolate stogie from the corner of his mouth, from the ripped stone evil scowl on his face, the kid had to be none other than Mars Bar Thompson himself. If black meant bad, if black meant in your face nastiness, if black meant as far from white as you can get, then Mars Bar Thompson was the blackest of the black. Here, in the middle of their living room, stopping the party, the neighborhood kids, the Cobras, even George McNabb, stopping them dead as traffic, just walked in through the front door, the steel door, breezed right on in, past the bars, standing there. I own this joint in there. Before they knew what was happening, before anyone could reach for anything, which, of course, is just what Maniac had in mind. Remembering how little Grayson had known about black people in black homes. Thinking of the McNabb's wrong-headed notions. Thinking of Mars Bar's knee-jerk reaction to anyone wearing white skin. And thinking, naturally, what else would you expect? Whites never go inside blacks' homes, much less inside their thoughts and feelings. 
and blacks are just as ignorant of whites. What white kid could hate blacks after spending five minutes in the Bills house? And what black kid could hate whites after answering Mr. Pickwell's dinner whistle? But the East Enders stayed in the East, and the West Enders stayed in the West. And the less they knew about each other, the more they invented. It hadn't been easy finding Mars Bar, taking all his lip about cheating on the race, taking some bumps, some shoves, Mars goading him to fight. But keeping his own cool, matching Mars Bar glare for glare, telling him he wasn't as bad as he thought he was, really stoking him now, making him slam his candy bar into the ground. No? You want to tell me why I ain't so bad, fish? Go ahead, for I waste you. Chest to chest. Keeping cool. Letting Mars do all the huffing. Simple. You don't cross Hector. You stay over here, where it's safe. How bad would you be over there? Stepping back then, folding his arms. Smugging it up just enough. Standing there in his white skin. Gazing nonchalantly about. Six blocks deep in the heart of the black side. I guess that makes me badder than you. They didn't go straight to the McNabs. First, they went to the Pickwells. Maniac wanted Mars Bar to see the best the West End had to offer. The little Pickwells made as much fuss over Mars Bar as over Maniac. They believed, as did all little kids in the West End, that he carried a hundred Mars Bars with him at all times. Not surprisingly, Miss Pickwell never batted an eye when she saw who was coming to dinner. It was quite a sight, all right. Sixteen Pickwells plus Maniac, plus a down-and-out golf caddy. Eighteen so-called white faces in Mars Bar Thompson. To his credit, Mars Bar didn't use the words fish belly or honky once. Though on one occasion he did bend the truth of might. When a Pickwell kid asked him if it was true about the famous race in April, did Maniac really beat him going backwards? Mars Bar studied his fork for a minute and said, Yeah, he went backwards, but you got the story wrong. Wasn't me he beat. It was my brother, Milky Way. The little kids couldn't, <laughs> the little kids couldn't understand why the grown-ups laughed for five minutes after that. As for Mars Bar himself, his expression never changed until the dinner was almost over. When the littlest non-baby Pickwell, Dolly, called him Mr. Barr. And even then it wasn't so much a smile as a crack in the glare. Even if Mars wasn't letting on, Maniac could tell he was pleased to learn his fame had spread to the West. When he left, half the Pickwell kids followed them, begging Mars to perform his legendary feat of stopping traffic. Don't, Maniac warned. It might not work over here. But the Pickwells persisted, and when they reached Marshall Street, Mars Bar commanded, Stay here, and stepped into the traffic. Not only did he shamble, jive, shuck, and hip-doodle at his own sweet pace, he did something he had never even done in the East End. He came to a complete and utter halt halfway across and let nothing but the evil in his eyes take care of the rest. He stood like that for one full minute. By the time he finally moved on to the far side, so the legend goes, 
23 cars, several bicycles, and a bus were stacked to a dead stop in both directions. Maniac hurried across while the Pickwell stood at the curb, cheering and waving goodbye. But no one was cheering now in Fort McNabb. And Maniac knew that despite the swagger and the scowl and the chocolate stogie, Mars Bar Thompson was one uneasy dude. There's four chapters left, y'all. I'm just going to keep reading. Chapter 42. George McNabb was the first to speak up. He was stretched out in the only new piece of furniture in the house, a tilt-back lounge chair. Said McNabb, what's he doing here? The awkward silence that followed was mercifully broken by Piper, tugging on Maniac's arm. Where's my birthday present? What'd you get me? Maniac pulled the present from his pocket. Piper exclaimed, A watch! No, said Maniac. A compass. It tells you which direction you're going. Like to the ocean? asked Russell. The ocean? Mexico? Anywhere in the world? Only one thing. What's that? Maniac took the compass from Piper's hand. I'm keeping it until school's over. If you go every day, both of you, then you can have it back and sell around the world. On our raft, Piper cheered. Is it a deal? Piper and Russell and Maniac did a three-way high five. It's a deal. George McNabb pulled himself from the easy chair and shuffled into the kitchen. He wore bareback slippers over bare feet. His white ankles were dirty. He took a beer can from the fridge and headed for the steps. Let me know when it leaves, he said and went upstairs. Maniac could feel the voltage that surged through Mars Bar and crackled black lightning from his eyes. Quickly, he clapped his hands. Hey, isn't this a party? Where are the games? So they played games. Silly games, whose main objectives seemed to be shrieking and screaming. Mars Bar allowed himself to be dragged into him. But his jaw was clenched and his eyes kept straying to the gaping hole in the ceiling. And to the Cobras, who were slouching against the walls and baseboards, sipping beers and watching his every move. None of them had spoken since Mars and Maniac walked in. Of course, as far as the little kids were concerned, the highlight of the whole party was not the birthday boy, Piper McNabb, but the McNabb's new pillbox. They found every reason to stay inside it. They fought over space at the narrow gunnery slots. When Mars Bar whispered to Maniac, What is that? Maniac said it was a bomb shelter. Then Russell called, Let's play Rebels. Whites in the pillbox. Blacks outside. A cheer went up, and a dozen kids stampeded into the pillbox. Their gavels circled the cinder block walls and popped from the gunnery slots. I'm going to be white. I'm white. Me too. Too many in here. We need more blacks. Not me. Not me. We ain't got enough guns. Only the ones with the guns are in. The rest of you get out. You're black. Give me a gun. I had it first. Come on, you meatballs. Blacks are the best part. You get to charge. Yeah, we get to lose. Look, you can use beer cans for grenades. You can lob grenades. Then you do it. Well... Somebody's got to be black, else we ain't playing. I'm counting. 
Time I hit 10, I want to see five of you out there. One, Russell counted. No one came out. Not at nine, not at 10, not after 10. Maniac and Mars Bar stared in silence at the gunnery slots, where wide open eyes began to appear, one pair atop another. The three words that Mars Bar sneered, the joke that he spat out, yeah, bomb shelter, did not even have the moment to themselves, for just then another word, Geronimo, came plunging from the sky and landed with a floor-jarring, heart-stopping crash behind him. A cobra had jumped from the hole, a fat, red-haired cobra, who was now rolling on the floor and laughing so hard, as were all the cobras, that his face matched the color of his hair. You see him? You see him jump? I never seen, I never, look at his pants. Somebody check out his pants, check his drawers, oh man, oh, oh. Maniac had to wrap Mars Bar in a bear hug to keep from charging the fat red roller. The laughter stopped as if cut by scissors. The Cobras were standing. John McNabb sauntered forward. You got a problem, Sonny? That wasn't funny, John, said Maniac. He could have been hurt. McNabb kept his eyes on Mars Bar. I ain't talking to you, McGee. I'm talking to Sonny here. Don't you like our party, Sonny boy? Mars Bar strained against Maniac's arms. You ain't got to worry about me coming to no more of your party's fish belly. And you ain't got to worry about me invading this piss hole. Somebody come from a block away, they faint from the smell. McNabb advanced. Maniac shouted, John, you owe me one. I brought the boys back. McNabb took another step, then stayed. The Cobra stayed, and Maniac, clamping the struggling Mars bar for dear life, lugged him down a gauntlet of seething eyes to the door in the street. Mars bar wrenched free and stomped on ahead. Maniac followed. It was almost dark. High above, the streetlights were buzzing on, one by one. After several blocks, Mars bar wheeled. You suckered me. You soft me up with them pick peoples, then bring me here. What'd you think? I was going to cry? Okay, I'll come over. I did it. It's done. And don't you be coming around no more, you hear me, fish? Because you ain't only seen me half bad yet. He turned and headed due east. Maniac walked another way. It was a good question. What had he thought? What had he expected? A miracle? Well, come to think of it, maybe one had happened. While he was looking for one miracle, maybe another had snuck up on him. It happened while he was clamping and lugging Mars Bars down the gauntlet of Cobras, trying to keep him alive. And what was Mars Bar doing? Fighting him, maniac, struggling to get loose and bust some Cobras. Outnumbered, outweighed, but not outhearted. That's when Maniac felt it. Pride for this East End warrior who Maniac could feel trembling in his arms, scared as any normal kid would be, but not showing it to them. Yeah, you're bad, all right, Mars Bar. You're more than bad. You're good. Maniac stopped. He had been walking in circles. It was dark. He turned one way, then another, for the briefest moment thinking to go home. Thinking, it's time to go home now. 
then remembering that once again, he had no home to go to. See, this was the one part where I was disappointed in Maniac. Like, what'd you expect was going to happen? You bring one black kid into the white town or into the white area, knowing what white folks think about black kids, and you expect that black kid to be what? The savior? You expect that black kid to be the connection? The bridge? What'd you expect was going to happen? I mean... Maniac is a lot of things, but he's not naive. He should have saw that coming. The way that that white, the way that the black dude was talking to him on the East End, and the way that the that big McNabb, the George was talking, and the kids were talking on the on the West End, should have let him know it's not safe for Mars Bar to be here, and you should have respected that. I mean, if you're going to bring them together, bring them together. Yeah, whatever. But don't bring somebody into enemy territory. You don't bring a blood into a Crips territory just so that you can show that we're all the same. That's not how this works. You're young, but you're naive. And I'm disappointed in you. Chapter number 43. He slept in the park that night and for the next dozen or so. Sometimes in the buffalo shed. Other times the bandshell benches or the pavilion. The nights were warm now. June was on the way. He ate when and where he could. For apples and carrots and day-old hamburger buns, you couldn't beat the deer and buffalo pens. A new Acme had opened, and the bakery section always had a tray of free samples sitting on the counter. And then there were always the Pickwells. It may have been an illusion, but it seemed that the hungrier he got, the farther Miss Pickwell's whistle traveled. Some dinner times, there was hardly a spot in town where he couldn't hear it. He read in the library. He joined pickup games in the park, baseball, basketball. School was letting out. There were more kids. Mornings were the best. He would rise with the sun's color, before the sun itself, before the bison, and set out. He came to think of those apple skin hours as a special time with the town. There was not a street or an alleyway or a house or a store, not even a garage that he didn't recognize. His footsteps fell everywhere but on the bridge over the Schuylkill. His eyes everywhere but on the P and W trolley trestle. And the people, most of them he did not know by name or face, yet they revealed themselves to him even as he slept. They knew them by their windows and cars and porches and toys they left outside. But most of all, he knew them by their backyards. Flowers, weeds, junk, pet houses, tree houses, vegetable gardens, rubber tires, Grass ranging from desert sparse to shaggy to trim as a marine's haircut. The backyards were as different as individualist faces. East end and west end, black and white, would begin only when the alarm clocks rang. For now, before sunrise, there was no divisions, no barriers. There was only the people, the families, the town. His town. As much his town as anyone's. He knew he could be sleeping right there in the Bill's house or the Pickwells, or even the McNabs. But beyond that, for a few enchanted moments each newborn morning, he believed there was not a single home in two mills, not a single one that would not happily welcome him to enter and go upstairs and curl up between its sleepers. Maybe that's why he left his bandshell bench late one night in mid-June and went to somebody's backyard on Hamilton Street, someone whose leaf lettuce he had watched growing, and quietly opened the gate and closed it behind him and lay himself down in the white wicker love seat on the back porch. From then on, he slept in a different backyard or back porch every night. Once, finding the back door unlocked, he slept in the kitchen. And, and that's why I lock my doors. I'm not saying that, you know, I'd attack a kid for sleeping in my 
kitchen. I'm just saying. I mean, after the shock, I might adopt them. I might take them in. But if I walk into my kitchen and there's somebody sleeping on my kitchen floor, you already down. I might stomp you a few times. I mean, I have really vivid bad dreams, and one of them does not it not involve somebody sleeping in my back kitchen. It's weird that I have a dream like that, right? Maybe it's from reading this book. All I know is that it ends up with a Wendigo getting stomped out. Chapter 44. One morning in early July, cruising down the apple skin hour, Maniac thought he heard footsteps other than his own. He stopped. Only the vast quietness responded. It happened a few more times. Must be his own footfalls echoing down the row house canyons. Two days later, passing an alley, he thought something moved at the other end. And once, turning onto a broad street, he had the feeling, more sense than sight, that something had just flashed around the corner two blocks away. When those odd sensations continued for another morning or two, Maniac knew he wasn't alone. So, he wasn't totally surprised when, a few mornings later, he turned a corner and ran smack into another early hour cruiser. No. It wasn't the what that surprised him. It was the who. Mars Bar Thompson. They quickly bounced off each other and went their separate ways. Neither paused. Neither said a word. This was the first in a series of apparently random mergings. Intersections. Alleyways. One never knew where he would come across the other. Sometimes they found themselves running the same route, only a block apart. On one occasion, they trotted down the same street at the same time in the same direction, but on opposite sides of the street. And then one day, as it happened, they each turned a particular corner at the same moment and headed off in the same direction, side by side. Still, neither spoke. Not even their eyes met. They jogged silently for a block, then veered apart. The next time they dovetailed, they stayed that way for two blocks, then three blocks, and so on. No words, no looks, just the rhythmic slapping of their sneaker soles upon the sidewalk and the pulsing duet of their breathing. Stride for stride, shoulder to shoulder, breath for breath, until they were matching on all points. A harnessed pair, two runners become one. Morning after morning it happened this way, the two of them dovetailing at an intersection and, without the slightest hitch in stride, cruising off together. Though each face showed no awareness of the other, they were in fact minutely sensitive to each other. If Mars Bar cranked up the pace just a notch, Maniac would pick it up within a stride. If Maniac inched ahead, Mars Bar was there. If one veered to the left or right, the other followed like a shadow. One day one was the leader, the next day the other. One day Mars Bar would lead Maniac down the river, down the tracks, past the railroad gondolas, each with its own mountain of coal to the rolling mill at the steel plant where his father worked. Another day, Maniac would head for the townships to the north and west, the farmlands of the country, where dew sparkled on spider webs, and nature was doing such fresh and wonderful things that you could almost hear the long, neat congregations of corn clapping, Amen! And Amen! When the working people began leaving their houses, the daybreak boys diverged. Mars Bar to the east end, Maniac to wherever. A week passed, a second week, morning after morning, stride for stride, breath by breath. Never a word, never a glance, each believing the other simply happened to be going where he was going.
They were cruising Main Street one morning, passing the Grand Movie Theater, when Piper McNabb came screaming down the middle of the empty street. He was wide-eyed and crying and soaking wet. His feet were slathered in cold black mud. He shrieked and babbled at them, but he made no sense, so they just followed as he raced frantically back up the street. As they ran, the belch-like toot of a whistle grew louder and louder. He led them to the corner of Main and Swede, to where the platform of the PNW trolley terminal hung high above the sidewalk. He burst into the terminal building and up the steps. In a moment, Maniac and Mars Bar were on the platform, gasping and following Piper's pointing finger down the tracks. What they saw pulled the fragments of Piper's babble together. The boys had been playing bombs away. Piper's part was to sail the raft down the river. Russell's part was to wait on the trolley trestle to span the river, and when Piper passed underneath, bomb away from a bucket full of rocks. Everything went as planned, unless you count Russell's failing to sink the raft, and Piper's practically drowning trying to beach it, until Piper returned to the terminal to find Russell still out on the trestle. Apparently, without the target below to focus on, Russell has suddenly discovered how high up he was. One false step, and he could slip right between the ties to the river. And that's where Russell was now, out on the middle of the trestle, high above the water, frozen in terror, not even a railing to cling to, responding neither to Piper's cry nor the red and yellow P&W trolley, which also occupied the trestle, idling and tooting about 20 feet away. Piper pulled a maniac. Save him! Save him! Mars Bar stared with growing astonishment at Maniac, whose wide, unblinking eyes were fixed on the trestle, yet somehow did not register what was there. Nor did he seem to hear Piper pleading. With the drenched, mud-footed kid clawing at him, he turned without a word, without a gesture, and left the platform and went downstairs. Shortly, he appeared at the sidewalk below. He crossed Main and continued walking slowly up Swede, Piper screaming after him from the end of the platform. I mean, I can understand. I mean, he. this is the life-changing event. This is like his greatest fear come to life. If you told me that there was a kid hanging on 100 feet up from a redwood tree, I'd leave. I'm sorry. I'd, I'd have to gather myself, maybe. But at that age, I'd leave. Chapter 45. McGee! McGee! Maniac's first groggle thought was that it was the buffalo calling to him. Then he thought, it's the superintendent. He's discovered me, and he's come to kick me out. He propped himself on his elbow, swatted a straw from his ear, and gave a better listen. McGee! McGee! Mars Bar. It was the second night following the morning at the trestle. Maniac had been asleep in the buffalo lean-to. He stood. McGee! Where are you? Here! Over here! He headed towards the voice over the hoof-chopped earth. The moon was full. He could see Mars Bar's dark form against the fence. Then he could see his eyes. What are you doing here? I've been looking for you. I heard you hung out here. Where'd you hear that? Amanda Bill. You really sleep here, man? 
What do you want? Where are the buffaloes? I, I can't see them. They're sleeping. Like every other person who's got sense. What are you doing out here at this time of night? I snuck out. I'm not there when they wake up. They figure I'm out running like usual. Ain't you afraid in there? No. Both fell silent. Cricket talk and fireflies held the night. McGee? Yeah. I gotta ask you something. Go ahead. Why'd you... Why didn't you go after the kid? Why'd you go away? Maniac didn't answer. Listen, man. I know you wasn't scared. I know it. So I had to come ask you. Maniac's voice came faintly. Is he okay? I asked you first. Maniac drew a long breath. You want to come in? Mars Bar laughed. You kidding? Ain't no buffalo gonna eat this dude. They don't eat people. You come out here, man. Maniac climbed the fence. He started to walk. Mars Bar walked with him. Maniac told him the story of his parents' death. He told him about his problem with the trestle. How he had learned to avoid it. And then, all of a sudden, there I was on the platform, looking out on it, closer to it than I ever was before, up on the same level. I always saw from below before. Now I was up there too, where they were, looking down, and it was more real than ever. The nightmare was worse than ever. I saw the trolley coming. I saw it falling. Them, them... They walked in silence past a silo-shaped cage of a broken-winged golden eagle. Mars Bar swallowed hard. His voice was hoarse. I knew you wasn't scared. Maniac sniffed. I don't remember much. Next thing I knew, I was somewhere on Swede Street. Somebody come down the east end like you did, all by himself, a fish belly, and get all up in my face? He rippled a stick along the deer pen fence. I knew scared wasn't it. So, said Maniac, what happened? Mars Bar laughed, wagged his head. Happened? Man, I still don't believe it. He rippled the fence. That little honky, he looks at me with his crybaby face and says, Okay, can I go out and get his brother? I looked around like, is, is somebody else here? I says to him, who you talking to? Me? I'm just pulling his chain, only he don't know it. Because I'm ticked a little, you know? Because he was hollering for you up the street. And there I am standing right alongside the damn super white potato. Understand what I'm saying? Maniac nodded. And out of the darkness came the strangest sound, a kind of amplified gulp. Mars Bar jumped. What's that? Emu, said Maniac. There. Behind the nearest fence loomed a tall, thin neck topped by a small head. E what? Emu. Second largest bird in the world after the ostrich. They're from Australia. I don't remember studying about no emu. You buddies with all these dudes? Nah. Just a buffalo. So go ahead. What happened? What happened? Mars Bar snorted. 
What happened was, I went out and rescued the dumb fish. I'd like to get myself killed. Maniac touched Marsbar's arm. He's okay? Marsbar snickered. Yeah, he's okay. But that ain't the main part. The main part is how he was all grabbing onto me coming off the tracks. Shaking, shivering, hugging, like he wanted to climb inside me. I was afraid. He shook his head, giggled. Afraid the fish belly was going to kiss me. They laughed. Maniac tried to picture it. The two of them making their way across the trestle, tie by tie, arms wrapped around each other. And that wasn't even the mainest part, said Marsbar, his voice rising in wonder. Even when we got off, he wouldn't let me go. We're off it, I says to him. You're rescued. But all he does is grab me harder like he's an octopus or something. Off the platform, down the steps, out into the street, he's still doing it. I couldn't pry him off no how. So, said Maniac, what did you do? What'd I do? I took him home. Maniac stopped dead. What? Marsbar shrugged. I figured, let my mom pry him off me. Course, the other one had to come too, but I made him leave the muddy sneakers outside. He put his nose to a fence. What's in there? I don't see nothing. It's Prairie Dog Town. They're underground. So, what then? So, my mother took over. She pried the one off me, and as soon as she does, he jumps right onto her like an octopus. I had to go pull him off, and she gets all mad at me and says, let him go. Let him go. She gets the wet one dried off, takes off his clothes, and puts my old stuff on him. Stuff she's been saving in case I get a little brother someday. But I won't, because my mom can't have no babies no more. And I ain't even come to the craziest part yet. What's that? They didn't want to go home. They stayed all day. My mother babying them, feeding them. I tell her not to. She swats me away. Sometimes my mom ain't got no sense. She makes me play games with them. Monopoly and stuff. Finally, my father drives them home. It's after dark. They're getting out the car. And know what they say to me? I'm in the car too, he wagged his head. They asked me to come in and play that game of theirs. Rebels. They like beg me. They say, come on, please. If you play with us, we'll let you be white. You believe that? Maniac chuckled. I believe it. So I'm just jumping in real quick right here. This is heartbreaking to me because these boys and all the time that they've lived, as far as we know, they've never had a mother. So to have a mom and to have somebody actually rescue them where their older brother obviously didn't care about them, but they were to run away for days and at a time and nobody cared. To have somebody actually care if they still hate black folks after this or think they hate black folks after this, it's beyond me. They walked on. McGee. Yeah. I had to ask you something. Now I got to tell you something. What's that? You smell like a buffalo. Ears of a hundred different shapes prickled at the long, loud laughter of the boys. McGee, Marsbar said after a spell. Yeah? My mother wants to ask you something, too. Your mother? Yeah. Like, I already told her about you, you know. Actually, 
she already heard about you. So, she wants to know, like, um, why don't you come to our house? Maniac turned, stared directly at Mars Bar. Mars Bar looked away. He said nothing more. They walked on, silent amongst the crickets and fireflies. Having made a full circle at the zoo, they were back at the pen of the American bison. Maniac said, I can't. Why not, said Mars Bar. My house not good enough? My mother? Maniac struggled for words. I didn't say I didn't want to. It's just, I don't know. Things happen. I can't. Look, man, Mars Bar snapped. Ain't nobody saying come live with us. All we saying, all she's saying is you want to come for a little, you know, visit? You want to? Well, come on, you can. That's all. Don't go making no big thing, man. It ain't no big thing. Maniac shuddered. He turned his eyes to the sky, beyond the flickering fireflies to the stars. If there were answers, they were as far away as the constellations. I gotta go, he said, and before Mars Bar could react, he was over the fence and hurrying for the lean-to. Every time Maniac has lived with somebody, something bad has happened. Even if there's something bad was as small as that book being torn up, something bad has happened. Grayson died, his parents died, his aunt and uncle, although they were already arguing, he thinks that he's the one who caused it. Because once he got there, they stopped talking completely. The McNabs were already messed up. They weren't really a family to begin with. He doesn't want to go mess up this happy home. He's like petrified. That is heartbreaking. Chapter 46 The teeth of the buffalo clamped firmly upon his ear and lifted his head straight up from the straw, up from sleep. Mars Bar was right. They do eat people. The buffalo did more than bring great pain to his ear. It spoke to him. Ain't you nice? Ain't you nice? But the voice of the buffalo was the voice of Amanda Bill, and his teeth were her fingers pulling and wrenching his poor ear till he was sitting upright. See that? She snapped and scrambled his brains with a smack to the head. He'd rather she pulled his ear. There you go, making me say ain't. I ain't said that word all year long, and now you go making me so mad. She snatched a handful of straw and flung it at him. I'm sorry, he said. He wondered if he would have better luck sleeping in an emu pen. Can I ask a question? Make it quick, she growled. Except for making you say ain't, what is it that I'm saying I'm sorry for? What? She screeched. She was standing above him, hands on hips. He didn't need the light of day to feel that look on her face. You're sorry for a whole mess of things, boy. You're sorry because you didn't accept Snickers' invitation to his house. And you're sorry because he came throwing a ball up against my bedroom window and waking me up and telling me I had to get up out of my bed and sneak out of my house in the middle of the night and come out here to do something about all this. That's why you're sorry, boy. Maniac yawned. Snickers? That's what I'm changing his name to. How bad can you act if everybody calling you? She said it loud. Snickers! A voice came rasping from the fence. Shut up, girl. Maniac howled with laughter. 
It struck him that it had been a long time to see a reared back like this, so he let the laughter carry on as long as it wanted. When he finally settled down, Amanda said, Okay, let's go. Huh? said Maniac. Let's go. Where? Home. Whose? Mine. Yours. Ours. Come on, I'm sleepy. Oh, no. Maniac opened his mouth to speak, to protest, to explain, but that was too much. A hundred nights wouldn't be long enough to explain, to make her understand. So he simply said, I can't, and lay back down. In an instant, he was bolt upright again, yanked by a hand he couldn't believe belonged to a girl. Don't tell me can't. I didn't come all the way out here in my night shirt and my slippers and climb that fence and almost kill myself so I could hear you say can't. She was yelling. Several pins away, Prairie Dog Town stirred. Heads popped into the moonlight. You got it all wrong, Buster. You ain't got... Ooh, see? She kicked him. You do not have a choice. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. You're coming home with me, and you're going to sleep in my room, which is going to be your room, and I don't care if you sleep on the floor or the windowsill or what, but you're going to sleep there and not here, and you're going to sleep there tonight and tomorrow night and the night after that and the night after that and every night, except maybe once in a while if you decide to sleep over at Snickers' house. If he ever asks you again, this is not your home. Now move. She jerked him to his feet. Applause and a brief whistle came from the fence. Amanda led him by the hand across the muddy, lumpy earth. Boost me, she commanded at the fence. He boosted her. Mars Bar helped her down from the other side. Maniac hesitated, then climbed over himself. They walked through the zoo and down the boulevard, the three of them. Amanda and Mars Bar slash Snickers and Maniac. Amanda grumbling all the way. You're more trouble outside the house than in it. Now I'm going to have to throw these slippers away. There's probably buffalo poop all over them. And you better not come within 10 feet of me, boy, until you get a bath. Maniac said nothing. He was quite content to let Amanda do the talking. For he knew that behind her grumbling was all that he ever wanted. He knew that finally, truly, at long last, someone was calling him home. Love the book. Still love the book. However, I want y'all to know plainly, nothing was changed in this book except for three kids' hearts. Two, because Amanda didn't care one way or the other. She didn't care about race. Mars Bar was changed because of the way the Pickwells treated him. The McNabs, the white folks, Nothing was changed on that side. The Cobras are still there. Big Giant John is still there. Their dad is still there. They're all still racing and building pillboxes and getting ready for the revolution or the rebels or whatever it may be. Nothing's changed. When those two little boys come home because their dad wasn't looking for them, they're going to go right back and they're going to grow up in that world where they're drinking beers at the age of like five and six. Nothing is going to change. The old man on the east side who called a maniac... A, a, a peckerwood or whatever he called him. He's still there. Nothing's going to change. Only thing to change was that Maniac now had a home. And maybe that's the first step. Who knows? I love this book, but as an adult, I see that 
racism can't be changed by one kid and it can't be changed by one act and it can't be changed by one person. Mars Bar saved those kids' lives. And even now, they were like, yo, you could be white when you come to our house. Like, he's going to come back to their house in that neighborhood. And why would he want to be white? Did you not learn anything? You just sat at his house with his parents who were doing wonderful things. Have you noticed that every... And I'm not saying you have you noticed like this is the... But have you noticed that in the black community, there was a mother and father in every house? I'm just saying. Everything that they had assumed about black people should have been seen when they went to Mars Bar's house, when they went to the Thompson's house, yet it was all missed by them. You could be white as his dad drops them off in his car back to their house where his son just saved them from absolute death. You could be white. Nothing's changed. Don't expect to be saved by a book. Just expect it to move something in you that might affect change down the line. Like I tell the kids in Sunday school, or I used to before they kicked me out for speaking the real, you can chop down a tree with a house key. It might take forever. It might take more than you swinging. But when you get tired, somebody else picks up that key and keeps going. Eventually, there's going to be a notch in that tree from that house key hitting it in the same exact spot. And eventually, that notch is going to become a crack. And that crack is going to become a tear. And that tear is going to become a hole. And that hole is going to become a schism. And that schism is going to cause a place where that tree will fall. But you have to stay after it. And it is the same for racism. We cannot stop talking about it. We cannot stop talking about what it is to our kids. We cannot stop talking about ways to combat it or ways to fix it or ways that we've been affected by it. We cannot stop talking about it. So every time somebody says, why do you keep bringing up racism? That's just you taking away the key you gotta keep talking about racism you gotta keep talking about injustice you gotta keep talking about the way lgbtqia folks are treated in this world you gotta keep talking about injustice and you gotta talk about white people's place in it but nobody wants to talk for that long nobody wants to knock down that tree they want to call you the angry one because you want to discuss it because you want to affect change because you want to make the world different and then a book like this comes out that shows you that things can be different, but they actually put things on. I just want to say the one issue I have with this book above all others is the fact that they made Mars Bar slip, slide, jive, dip, shuffle. So white guy writing a book where they had a black kid in it. And they made it out to seem that Mars Bar was really the problem. Really the problem was across from the West End where white kids are building a doggone pillbox for when the revolution happens. They have kids who are literally prepping for a war that they're going to start. That's the one problem I have with this book. I love this book. I do. And I'm glad I read it. It was an absolute honor. But we cannot... Stop swinging at that tree until it's knocked down. You have to keep swinging. You can't get tired. And when you do get tired, let somebody else swing in your place. That's an ally. White folks, I'm tired. Swing for me. Knock down this tree. That's the key to a future that we've never seen before. 916-633-1537. Wretched and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Leave a review. 
uh, on Podchaser, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, Podcast Addict, you know, the places. You can become a patron at patreon.com backslash single simulcast. You can buy me books at buymeacoffee slash sscast. Thank you all so much for listening. I greatly do appreciate it. Y'all have a good day. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast.